Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dr. Pallavi Pant, Head of Global Health at the Health Effects Institute, or HEI. Dr. Pant is the lead author on a new study that came out earlier this year called Air Quality and Health in Cities, which is part of HEI's State of Global Air series. Our conversation today focuses on the findings of that report, which explores the prevalence of fine particulate and nitrogen dioxide pollution in more than 7,000 cities worldwide. Given the large-scale impacts of air pollution on human health, and the sheer number of people who live in cities, this report has important lessons for, quite frankly, a substantial portion of humanity. Stay with us. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Pant. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. So just really quickly, before we actually dive into the substance of the report, I always like to ask guests to share a little bit about their backgrounds. And in particular, I'd love to know how you became interested in research on air pollution and on on health uh, broadly. Yeah, thanks a lot for that question. Um, I actually grew up in Delhi, which... Uh, some people may have heard about because it often is in the news for being one of the most polluted cities in the world. Um, Apocalyptic pictures emerge from time to time during winter season. And growing up in Delhi, we've, you know, sort of had phases of uh, air pollution problems. But it wasn't really the immediacy of air pollution that put me on this path. But my first interaction with air pollution was when um, we were being taught in schools that fireworks that are used extensively during one of the major Hindu festivals, Diwali, are actually not that great for the environment. And you can have, you know, um, sort of really bad exposures to pollutants and metals that are coming from them. And there were other issues sort of related to it, but that idea that burning something and being very close to it was bad for your health and was bad for the environment sort of stuck through. And then over time, uh, college and, and afterwards during my master's, I started focusing a little bit more on air pollution as an issue, which was you know very immediate, was around us and was something that you could do something about that's that's how it started um and over the years i've been fortunate to keep working in india on air pollution related issues and also get to work with colleagues from different parts of the world to figure out why the air pollution is really there what the sources are and also hopefully figure out ways to reduce it and improve people's health I wanted to start by asking about um, the types of air pollution that you actually looked at in this study. And my understanding is that there were two primary types, so fine particulates and nitrogen dioxide, as I mentioned at the outset. And I wanted to ask, sort of in turn, where those two types of pollution typically come from and how they impact human health. If you can just say a little bit more about sort of the avenues that fine particulates and nitrogen oxide, how do they typically get into the air? And then why do we care? What are they doing to human bodies that that uh, makes them so problematic? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a great question. And I feel like one that for anyone working on air pollution could... Um, could spend days on this, but in in very um, 
in very simple terms, if we think about air pollution, a lot of it comes when we burn things. So you could be burning, you know, a piece of paper, you could be burning incense sticks in your home, you could be burning fossil fuels to produce energy. And all of it is going to potentially lead to air pollution if the combustion is not efficient and it's not complete. So one major category of um, sources which result in air pollution, both the fine particulate matter, so these are tiny particles, often invisible to human eye because of their very, very small size, and also gases like nitrogen dioxides come from combustion-related sources. So think about coal being used for energy production, thinking about cars and other types of vehicles where we're using fuel, gasoline, diesel to run them. Um, We can think about industries where there are a number of different processes where, again, combustion is happening. And in some countries, especially in lower middle income countries, we also know that sources like waste can be a contributor to air pollution, especially to particulate matter, mostly because in the absence of very um, sort of uh, structured waste management practices, it can be hard to get rid of all of that waste. So what happens is we end up burning it, which then results in air pollution. And there are also some more natural sources of air pollution. So for, you know, people here in the U.S., every year we sort of hear very consistently about wildfires. And while we can debate how they started, um, you know, the, the burning of forests essentially releases a lot of particles and gases into the air. And that is a form of air pollution as well. In some other parts of the world where we have deserts, the dust from the desert can contribute to poor air quality. Um, Often the particles tend to be a little bit bigger in size, um, and we won't necessarily see gases like nitrogen dioxide. But for particles, that is also a source of, uh, you know, higher levels of PM2.5, even PM10, which is a larger sized particle. So we normally try to classify these particles by size and fine particulate matter or PM2.5 is what is sort of 2.5 microns in diameter or smaller. So really we cannot see them with our eyes. Our hair is about 50 to 70 microns in comparison, a single strand of hair. So those are some of the common sources of uh, air pollution in, in different parts of the world. And Some sources are very similar between PM2.5 and nitrogen dioxides um, because of the nature of how the the pollution is really occurring. And in principle, when we think of uh, nitrogen dioxide or nitrogen oxides in general, which are a bigger class, they're often most closely linked with traffic-related air pollution, which is also why for populations in cities, this can be a really big source, um, big contributor to where and how they might get exposed to air pollution. Industries and power plants are other major sources. And for fine particulate matter, it's sort of a mix of power plants, industries, um, in some cases, construction, waste burning. Um, In some parts of the world, we also see burning of agricultural waste in certain seasons and during certain times of the year, which can contribute to creation of particles. And what's um, somewhat unique in case of 
fine particulate matter or PM2.5 is that we not only emit it from certain sources, it can also be created in the atmosphere in the presence of other pollutants. Um, so yeah, a whole whole range of sources that can contribute to these pollutants. Can you say a little bit more about kind of what the fine particulates and the nitrogen oxides are doing, I'm guessing primarily to our lungs, but maybe to other systems in the body as well? Yeah, so there's been a lot of research over the last few decades trying to understand how air pollution affects our health. Um, And in many instances, we tend to think about air pollution impacting our lungs, our respiratory system, which of course is a major organ system within our body that is affected by air pollution. For many people, what this means is um, living with chronic respiratory diseases like chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder or COPD, as some may hear um, about it. Asthma is another disease that has been linked with air pollution exposure, both in terms of uh, exacerbation if someone has asthma, and in some cases developing asthma as a result of uh, exposures to air pollution. But in reality, the impacts of air pollution aren't limited to just our respiratory organs. Um, We have evidence, uh, substantial evidence, in fact, of the role of air pollution in chronic um, heart diseases, in uh, stroke, in certain types of cancer, especially lung cancer, and in, um, you know, other types of uh, sort of chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes. For some countries, the contribution of air pollution to these types of diseases can be very big. Um, And growing evidence that air pollution exposures can also impact our neurodegenerative diseases like dementia, um, which are sort of, you know, becoming more and more important as populations age around the world. So it's really a variety of organ systems um, and a variety of ways in which air pollution affects our health. And all of this is really long-term exposure. So we're getting exposed to air pollution over months and years of our life. And then in some cases, when we're only thinking about, you know, the 20-minute the or 30-minute exposure that may happen if you're walking next to a road or um, sometimes when air pollution levels just get really high, those can increase hospitalization. So more people going to visit the emergency department um, for people that are already living with diseases uh, like lung diseases and heart diseases in particular, we can see exacerbation of those. Um, And for a lot of people, just water, you know, water in your eyes or difficulty breathing, um, when pollution levels get particularly high, as as I've experienced a few times in uh, in Delhi. Yeah. Now let's turn to the the specific report focused on cities. And I wanted to ask a little bit about the data, because this is a really robust picture, you know, 7,200 cities, I believe it was, that were covered in this report. And, you know, that's a lot of data that you need to put together in order to provide that kind of robust a picture. And so where did you come by the data that you used for this study? And how did you combine it to be able to present this global picture? 
Yeah, thank you for that question. It's, um, you know, definitely one of the most important questions in relation to this report. Um, and we actually worked with our collaborators at George Washington University. Dr. Susan Annenberg was our, um, you know, one of our primary collaborators and also uh, colleagues at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation or IHME. Uh, some people may have heard about IHME more recently in the context of COVID. Um, they have a long-running project on understanding um, the global burden of disease linked with a variety of risk factors, which includes air pollution, but really includes you know a whole host of other factors like malnutrition, um, physical inactivity, etc. So we worked with both of these groups together to produce this report. And um, one of the biggest challenges we face when we start looking at air pollution at the global scale is that we don't know nearly enough about the reality of air pollution in many parts of the world. And that's partly because we don't have sufficient monitoring stations at scale. So in some countries, including the U.S., we have a relatively high density of air pollution monitors, especially for fine particulate matter or PM2.5. Um, but in other parts of the world, if you look especially at uh, continents, entire continents like Africa, we have very limited data. So for this report, we combined what we have from ground monitoring stations. So essentially, you know, stations um, in different cities, in some cases in rural areas or at places where there are no immediate sources of air pollution, but we still had a lot of gaps. So then we looked upward. Um, there's a lot of satellites around that capture data on various types of pollution. And in the last few years, there have been a lot of advancements in ways that we can use the satellite data effectively. So we combined ground-based data with satellite data and then used atmospheric models to really understand what the patterns of exposure are in different parts of the world so that you can get a relatively consistent picture four countries around the world and the data set is comparable enough within itself that we know we're using the same um, sort of, you know, same parameters, same data set. And the, the good thing with an approach like this is that we are able to talk about cities around the world. Um, you know, in the report, we included about 7,200 cities, as you mentioned. There are estimates available for even smaller locations. So they you know, places that may have smaller populations but are classified as urban centers. Um, but one of the challenges still is that we do not have sufficient ground-based data from certain places. So there are, you know, some, some things where we still need to improve, but it was um, this combination of different types of data sources that led us to the analysis and finally producing these, um, you know, these figures for cities around the world. I struggled a little bit to know what exactly I wanted to ask you about the kind of specific city level findings. Really, the core question is not sort of to call out, you know, winners and losers in this game. But ultimately, the question that I wanted to ask was sort of what do the cities with the worst outcomes, as you found in this report, in these two types of pollution, so again, PM2.5 and nitrogen dioxide, what do the cities with the worst outcomes have in common? Thanks a lot for that question. Um, you know, I think a lot of times we do tend to look at like who's doing really well and who's not doing so well. So I really appreciate your question. And I think there, there are a few things that um, become 
evident as we start looking at these global patterns. So I'll start with um, PM 2.5. And over the last many years, we've started to, um, you know, get get this understanding that the levels of PM 2.5 vary quite significantly across continents and across countries. We have um, a lot of countries in Asia, including countries like India and China, which often get a lot of coverage for, um, you know, sort of air pollution, but also countries like Nepal and Pakistan and, and South Asia or some of the Southeast Asian countries that have relatively high levels of PM 2.5. There are countries in Africa that have really high levels of uh, PM 2.5. And, um, you know, on balance, if we look at global maps, parts of Asia and parts of Africa tend to stand out quite a bit in terms of how bad the air pollution levels are there or PM 2.5 levels are there. And when we look at the city level data, similar things show up. So the cities with the highest levels of PM 2.5 tend to be in South Asia, in Africa, in Southeast Asia. Um, And a lot of them are cities that are rapidly growing. Um, You know, more infrastructure is being built. The vehicle technology measures may not be as stringent as they are in other parts of the world, especially if we look at North America and Europe, where PM 2.5 levels tend to be lower. Um, So I think they're in that process where there's growth and there's development and with it, slowly air quality management is being built in, um, but sources may not be as strongly sort of uh, tackled yet. Um, That includes energy production, that includes vehicles, that includes sources like waste burning that I mentioned earlier. Um, But when we start to look at nitrogen dioxide levels, a slightly different picture emerges. So we don't see cities from India or from Nigeria or from, uh, you know, Pakistan on the top of the list. What we see is that cities in areas that are considered more high income have higher, relatively higher levels of nitrogen dioxide exposures. A lot of cities from the Middle East show up uh, when we start looking at higher levels. Central Asia, another place which you know wouldn't necessarily come on the top of our list for PM two point five exposures, you know, has a lot of cities with high levels of nitrogen dioxide exposure. And Eastern Europe um, is another place that sort of comes to the top of the list. So when we start to think of which are the countries or the cities with highest levels of air pollution, and we have PM 2.5 in mind, we have a list that comes up and, you know, you would expect places like Delhi to be on that list. And you might expect some cities from, um, you know, African countries to be on that list. But with nitrogen dioxide, a whole other list shows up and we start to see cities from countries like Russia and Iran and Turkey and, you know, Uzbekistan are in among sort of the highest levels of nitrogen dioxide exposure. And in a lot of places where we see higher nitrogen dioxide exposures, we also know that in many cities of that kind, we have older vehicles, which may be more polluting. They may be using, you know, fuels that have perhaps higher um, sort of, you know, content of uh, sulfur and other um, sort of additives that are added. 
and the vehicles may not be running on all of the sort of control technology that we see in high-income countries. And it is also very interesting to see that some of the cities that have put in place over many, many years um, stringent controls in terms of what vehicles can emit, uh, what types of technology goes in, they're still trying to figure out how to reduce nitrogen dioxide exposure. So even in cities such as London in the UK or in Paris in France, we see relatively high levels of nitrogen dioxide exposure. These are also some places where we see more um, use of diesels for um, passenger vehicles. So the stories are vastly different depending on which pollutant you start to focus on. That is very interesting. And and how much do you know from kind of the body of knowledge that the community has generated around why that differentiation occurs? Is it still a bit of a mystery or do you feel like the kind of air pollution and health community has a sense of of why those two kind of concentrations or exposures would, would diverge so much? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, there are some answers and some clues that we have. For example, nitrogen dioxide as a pollutant uh, tends to be higher closest to the source. So if you have, um, you know, urban environments where there's lots of vehicles, and especially if these vehicles tend to be higher emitting vehicles, we might experience higher levels of nitrogen dioxides in those places. But even within a matter of a few kilometers away from the source, we start to see the levels of NO2 decline. So spatially speaking, um, nitrogen dioxide is a pollutant that is, you will see, you know, really high um, concentrations closest to source. Whereas pollutants like particulate matter, um, we can see very similar levels over kilometers and kilometers of space because there are regional sources that are also contributing to generation of these pollutants. Um, The other factor which is important to keep in mind is we do have a lot more information on particulate matter from the ground monitoring stations than we do for nitrogen dioxide. Countries have invested more in setting up monitors for PM2.5. We've known that PM2.5 is a very consistent predictor of the health effects. So investments have been made into monitoring and measuring what the levels of particulate matter are. And then some of it just really comes down to how the sources are being addressed or tackled. And, you know, as, as you would appreciate, air pollution is, is an issue, but it often connects very strongly with other decisions that are made in transportation, in energy production, etc. So what vehicles are applying on the road, where some of the other sources of air pollution might be with respect to the city, whether it's industries or power plants, which can also emit nitrogen dioxide, can make a lot of difference. And some of the other competing sources um, for PM2.5, for example, may not be as strongly present in some of the cities, resulting in higher NO2 exposures or nitrogen dioxide exposures, but not really high exposures for PM2.5. Imagine it's October 1952. 
There's no such thing as the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act, no federal fuel standards for cars, and the Environmental Protection Agency doesn't yet exist. That was the year Resources for the Future was created, 70 years ago this week. And ever since October 1952, RFF has been developing innovative policy solutions for the most pressing environmental, energy, and natural resource issues. As we commemorate RFF's founding, please consider donating to help us carry on this critical work for another 70 years. Visit rff.org donate to make your gift to RFF today. I want to turn to ask you a couple of questions about this is a, a report that's focused on cities, but it is part of a, a long series that HEI has been putting together with partners on the state of global air. And because there isn't that longevity, um, so I'd welcome any thoughts you have on what this report shows in terms of levels of, of pollution, either abating or getting worse, uh, and then maybe a little bit about what's driving some of those changes. Yeah, um, thank you again for that question, because I think, you know, with reports like these, which cover data both over spatial sort of, you know, uh, differences and over time, we are able to look at where we are making progress and where we may need to pay more attention. And I think, um, you know, consistent with what we have been hearing and sort of looking at the data over the last few decades, a lot of cities and countries, um, high-income countries, have been making progress in improving air quality. And this is very evident when we start to look, especially at the data for nitrogen dioxide. Cities including Los Angeles, which, you know, within the U.S. tends to be a place with relatively high air pollution exposures, have seen big declines over the last um, 10, 20 years. And that is consistent with the policy decisions that have been made um, to try and improve uh, or reduce emissions, I should say. And, you know, that is sort of a narrative that we hear about a lot. So um, we know that uh, countries in North America and countries in Europe have been investing in improvements of uh, different sort of emissions from sources. But what we are also seeing at the same time is that there are cities which are currently rapidly developing and growing, including some in Eastern Africa, including some cities in Latin America and Southeast Asia as well, which are starting to see levels of nitrogen dioxide go up, uh, which is, you know, somewhat worrying. That's perhaps an area that we need to keep focusing on. Um, And then a couple of examples which have been encouraging because the you know, the sort of quest for clean air takes a lot of time and resources. Um, And in many countries, you have that competition of where the money and time gets spent and which problem is bigger. Um, But in case of China, we've seen with data at the national level in our previous reports, we see some of it here in the city level data as well, that the policies and the programs that have been brought about over the last eight or so years um, have really resulted in improvements that are visible. We're already beginning to see them in the data, significant improvements both in uh, PM2.5 levels and in nitrogen dioxide levels over time, even though I will note that the the levels for both PM2.5 and nitrogen dioxide are high when we start to look at, you know, the, the guidelines that the World Health Organization um 
has put forward, but we're seeing progress and we're seeing improvement. And that has come about with very consistent policymaking, trying to reduce emissions at source and trying to, you know, find ways to cut down on what is being emitted into the atmosphere in the first place. We're also seeing in um, some African countries very uh, good progress being made to improve our understanding of air quality and starting to understand what the levels of air pollution are and how can we make progress on those. And we highlight some, you know, some examples in our report, but two that I'll just, you know, point out are Accra in Ghana and also Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, both of which have taken significant steps in recent years to try and understand the sources of air pollution and come up with plans to improve our understanding of you know, how these sources are affecting um, the air quality and people's health and also putting in place measures that will eventually lead to improved air quality. Um, but, none, you know, progress generally takes time when it comes to air pollution. So even if countries or cities were to implement measures today, we won't really see the results in two months or six months. We really need long-term sustained resources and funding to keep doing it. You know, you did say in China that the progress had been measurable in eight to 10 years, which in the scheme of things, you know, that is a pretty rapid improvement in my mind. And so that's, it's heartening to hear that, that changes can be um, felt, seen in certainly less than the span of a lifetime, which I think is, is really important. So, Pavi, I wanted to ask you another temporal question. And this one is something that struck me um, when I noticed that the data that are underlying this report are from 2010 to 2019. But what's so interesting to me about that time period is that as we are, all of us, the entire global population is all too aware, uh, 2020 was crazy. The pandemic rapidly changed the ways that people travel, the ways that people work. Um, these patterns were sort of shifted in very significant ways. So I guess I wanted to ask, if you do a report like this in a decade, let's say, um, what will that kind of radical disruption in the typical patterns of you know vehicle usage and sort of other facets of urban life, what do you think you'll be able to learn from the kind of shock to the system of the pandemic? Yeah, that's um, you know fascinating question, and I think one that we've all been thinking about quite a bit because, as you said, in the early days of the you know pandemic, when countries and cities were trying to figure out how to um, really control the pandemic, efforts were made to shut down as much activity as possible, and despite you know the massive amounts of sort of um, loss that we have seen as a result of the pandemic. This was the time when a lot of people in different places were really able to experience what clean air can look like and, you know, giving them hope that perhaps it is not, you know, a sort of a moonshot to try and think that, oh, well, can we really clean up our air and is it ever going to work? Um, and uh, a slight dampener perhaps on you know the the hopeful message is that even as lockdowns were lifted and people started going back to sort of you know some business as usual some new um ways of living and commuting and 
all of it. There have been not as many longer lasting changes to um, some of the air pollution related issues. For example, one unfortunate thing in some places that has happened is that as a result of the pandemic, more people are using their own vehicles, um, you know, which means we have more cars on the road or more passenger vehicles on the road. And because of the economic impact of those very strict lockdowns, some places have also made decisions to, you know, push for more industrial um, sort of activity or push for certain ways of doing things, which would mean perhaps more air pollution in the short to medium term. Um, And one example, again, you know, going back to China, which has really seen a lot of progress over the last eight to 10 years. But in the wake of the very stringent lockdowns, we did see the coal consumption levels go up quite a bit. So it it remains to be seen what we will, you know, what we will observe in in a report like this 10 years from now. But I think it's going to be a mixed bag again, perhaps, because um, cities and countries are trying to understand what they can take away from the, the lockdowns and what we learned from them and what we learned from this whole experience. And perhaps um, similar to what we've seen, you know, already There are going to be differences across regions, depending on what approach we take um, and what types of decisions we make to, um, you know, give people choices that would be cleaner, um, whether it is investing in cleaner energy, making public transportation easier, etc. But I think the, the biggest takeaway for me and I think for many other people has been this hope that clean air is really doable. Here's what it looks like and we can make it happen. Well, this has been really, really interesting. I appreciate your taking the time to talk through the report findings. I certainly encourage listeners to go take a look at um, at the wonderful kind of detail that is in the report. And yeah, and I guess I wanted to close our time together with our regular top of the stack feature. And I'd welcome any suggestions you have for more good content. Again, it can be on this topic or otherwise um, that our listeners might want to take a look at. So what's on the top of your stack? Yes, thank you. Um, I think I, you know, would like to sort of um, highlight another podcast that I've been listening to um, for some time now, which features younger environmental health, um, you know, researchers, community practitioners who are trying to make a difference through their work. It's called Agents of Change, uh, and it was established by an academic, but they've been growing the program, and it really brings together wonderful, uplifting, and inspiring stories of how and where change can happen, or even in some cases just raising, you know, those uncomfortable, difficult questions that we need to come to grips with, um, both in terms of interpersonal interactions and what our biggest environmental health problems are um, that we need to tackle today and into the future. So definitely on top of my list, they've just released, um, you know, sort of they've announced a new cohort of uh, fellows. So I'm excited about hearing and reading what they have to share with us. Fantastic. I appreciate the recommendation. I appreciate all the insight that you've shared with us. And it's been it's been a pleasure. Hope we can talk again soon. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. 
Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.